You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On today's show, we sit down with David Bates, who is a senior corporate and commercial lawyer, recommended in Legal 500, with over 20 years experience in advising on domestic and international mergers and acquisitions, private equity and venture capital transactions, and complex commercial arrangements across a variety of sectors, with a particular focus on the tech sector. On today's show, we talk about when a startup from the U.S. wants to expand to Europe, what is the process? How does a company analyze the market to decide where in Europe to set up their operations? What type of exits are companies looking for? Or what is the current state of investment environment like in Europe? And much, much more on this episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now let's begin. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. David, thank you for taking the time today to be on the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now, I got a ton of questions for you, but before even starting, can you give our listeners a little bit of background on your career, your history up until this point? Sure. Thanks, Sean. And thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Maybe able to tell from the accent, I'm from the UK, from London originally. And London's where I spent the first 20 years of my career, working as an attorney in, in the venture capital and tech world, doing venture capital investment and M&A tech firms. In 2014, I moved to a firm called Taylor Wessing, who are Europe's leading tech law firm. And then in 2017, was given the opportunity to move to the office out here in Silicon Valley. We have an office here on the West Coast. That was quite an interesting move. The firm asked me if I'd be interested in living in California for a few years. And I thought it sounded exciting and a great opportunity, but obviously I had to run it by my wife, went home to speak to her. uh, And she thought about it for about two seconds and said, yes, when do we go? So that's worked out great. We love it out here. And what I do out here is basically help US companies with their sort of international legal needs. So they're helping them sort of do business in Europe is the key focus for what we're here. And we're here to be on the ground and help them do that in their time zone. So now that you're here in Silicon Valley, I mean, you have that great background, that great perspective of the startup ecosystem over in London mm-hmm. and Europe. Now, for most of us, we have never had that experience. Can you tell us kind of some of the similarities, kind of some of the differences in the startup ecosystem there and then here? Sure, absolutely. I think at, at the macro level, it's very similar. If you start from the point of view, it's smart people with good ideas trying to raise money and develop their companies. It looks the same at that level. It's the same sort of set of ambitions and what people are seeking to do. I think where the difference is the scale and the experience. There's more money here. There's more startups. I think most importantly, there's a different culture here. There is a different atmosphere. People, but I think particularly in the Valley, want startups to succeed. There's support. People are happy to give back. And I'm not saying that doesn't happen in Europe, particularly in places like London and Berlin. It does. It's just that they are maybe in London and Berlin a few years behind where the ecosystem is here. Europe is catching up and it's developing. It'll never be the same, but it is, there is just a, an intangible difference here in that people, are, you know, people want these companies to succeed. People are willing to give of their time and, and share their experience. And there's a greater pool of experience. And then you've got the access to capital. You've got a great ecosystem in terms of people are used to dealing with tech companies here. They want them to do well. And certain parts of Europe aren't quite there yet with that system. So when you're saying access to capital, access to resources, 
Are there the accelerators, the incubators? Is there the area in most of the U.S.? There's a small business development center that Mm -hmm. has resources. There's Chamber of Commerce. There's a lot of local resources that have had experience working with startups and are able to give resources and help them grow. There are similar resources like that in Europe. Yes, absolutely there are. And that is a sector that's been growing sort of massively in the last five to 10 years, let's say. Um, They're definitely the incubators. Europe, we probably have a little bit less in terms of angel funding, but there are more sort of individuals who are prepared to put money in and sort of into groups and fund through that way, rather than here you have that sort of pool of people that have been through the cycle once, have had a great exit and now want to put it back in. We're seeing that in, say, the UK, but it's you know maybe 10 years behind where it is here, five years behind, something like that. You do have that infrastructure, that network to help nurture these companies, and that has really expanded in the last sort of five years or so, I would say. It's just that it's not as advanced as where Silicon Valley is because this, you know, this is the birthplace of stuff. This is where it all started and the rest of the world. And even within the US, I think the rest of, you know, the, rest of the world is playing catch up to how the system works here. That's interesting. So it sounds like syndicates, investment mm, syndicates exactly. are more the norm for investing there. Yeah. Interesting. So if a startup there wanted to get capital, is it more common then for them to try to go abroad, maybe here to Silicon Valley and to get the resources? Or are there the angel syndicates in London, Berlin, or where are the hotspots, I guess? Yeah. So, the, I mean, the hotspots would be places like London, Berlin, Paris, be the sort of the three that jump immediately to mind. London is definitely is by far the biggest of those three. But there's great companies coming out of Paris. There's some great companies coming out of Berlin. The Nordics have some very interesting sort of companies coming out of there as well. But on your point on funding, what, I think what we see a lot in Europe is there's sort of seed money um, through those angel networks. There's then Series A money. There's some great venture capital funds doing great investments in that area. Where there's often then a funding gap is that later stage venture growth. There are companies and funds that are trying to plug that, but there's not as much money in that area as there is in the US. And that's when we typically see really good companies, really solid companies come to try and raise money in the US once they get to that stage. So once they're beyond Series A, they're looking for that growth capital, they may well come. And what we've also seen is the US funds see the opportunity in Europe in that they are now, a number of the funds have set up offices in Europe, a number of the household names, and they are now looking to invest directly into European companies because they realize there's really good companies, really good tech, and also a a big market, 450 million consumers or whatever it is in Europe. So we've seen last three to five years, say, more and more US funds making investments direct into European companies. And these would be the sort of Sand Hill Road and when they set up their offices or facilities, is it mostly in London or is it Berlin or some of these other spots you just mentioned? It tends to be London. What we see generally um, as a generalization is that for US either funds or companies coming to Europe, the UK in general and London in particular is most comfortable in the sense of culturally there's a better fit language-wise. Legal system is a common law jurisdiction. And then they use London as the base to then sort of expand into Europe from London. London is the stepping stone in a lot of cases. Now, that's not always the case. There will be some that have good reasons to go to other places. If you're sort of in automotive tech, for instance, then you would look naturally to Germany, for example, and not the UK. As a rule of thumb or as a generalization, you know, London, the UK tends to be the starting point. Let's talk about that expansion into Europe. What's that 
process look like? The starting point is sort of why are you expanding and why do you want to go? We sort of primarily see three reasons and the first two more so than the third. One is there's a market opportunity. You've got customers or you think you have potential customers there that you want to go and win and get business from and you need to be on the ground to do that. The second one that we increasingly see is its talent. A lot of good talent in Europe, London, but also in sort of places in a lot of good engineering talent in places like Paris or coming out of the Eastern European, Czech Republic, Poland, etc. Great technical universities, excellent talent at a fraction of the cost of the Bay Area. So we see people sort of expanding into Europe for that reason. And the third is where a customer essentially tells you, you need to be there. I'm using you across the US. I now want to use you, uh, my business operations in Europe, please set up there. That's less common, but happens a fair bit. In the sense of what we often see is it's either the sales team or the engineering team going to the business and saying, we need to now be in Europe. And then it's handed over, you know, legal, finance, HR, tax, et cetera, to make it happen. But that initial sort of impetus, I would say, again, as a generalization, mostly comes from either sales teams or engineering teams. That's interesting. And to go back in like the US, it's kind of normal to start off Bay Area, then you might set up your next office in Chicago. Or What's kind of the pattern for expansion of a startup that maybe starts in London or maybe starts in Berlin? What's their normal expansion or is there one? I don't think there is an is one in that sense, because it will depend on sort of your product and where your customers are. You may then want to say you start in Berlin or London, you may first look at the rest of Europe because it's nearer and easier. The holy grail for a lot of companies is still the US, biggest economy, the biggest market, so that, that's obvious. There was a period where everyone was looking at China. I think that may have cooled slightly, but it will be, I think, to the most part, led by that stage of where is the business opportunity, where are the customers for your product, and that will drive your expansion. Within Europe itself, of course, we have the single market. So you can trade and do business across Europe from one location without having to set up in all of the different locations. Now, there may be a good reason why you need boots on the ground, and that's a different question. But you, if you can do it all from one place, then you're free to do that. So then how does a company analyze the market there? I mean, honestly, before the current times, the way people did it was get on a plane and go and see the market, get in person, meet with customers or potential customers. If you have customers here that have operations in Europe, use them as an, an introduction so you can then speak to the relevant people in the European arm about what their needs are, because they will be slightly different. It's a, it's a, different, a different market. But I think traditionally, there's been no sort of substitute for going out there and getting a, spending time on the ground, getting a feel for the market. There's obviously research you can do sort of online. There are consultancies that will help you with this stuff, although I think most companies, certainly the, you know, the younger ones, will do it themselves. Um, but it is about getting out there and seeing the opportunity, meeting with clients, talking to peers who've done it. We find a lot of companies do that, and that's successful for them. Talking to industry bodies in Europe that will be there to help you. I think virtually every sort of major economy in Europe has trade delegates here located on the ground in the US that are there to help attract investment into their country. I know the British government does. It's got a big team in San Francisco, for instance, that is very happy to talk to US companies about expanding to the UK and the market and what it looks like and how that operates. And that's at a more commercially focused level than, say, talking to a lawyer or an accountant. There are actually a lot of free resources out there as well that US companies can tap into within the US because everybody wants 
investment in this global economy. So people are there trying to help. And then, then you go and go and see it for yourself. Okay. So say I, I talked to the, the London Chamber in San Francisco, and they've given me some good advice set up in this city in London. These are some of the resources that are available. Earlier, it was mentioned top engineer talent coming out of Eastern Europe. Mm. How do I mix all the benefits of every place in Europe to maximize it? What we find most clients do is they start in one place, get their feet on the ground, get used to it, and then they build on that. The exception to that would be companies, and we're seeing more and more of this, particularly in the current time, where they use what we call a distributed employment model. They will find someone they like in Poland. They'll find someone they like in the Czech Republic. They'll find someone they like in Spain. And they won't have an office as such. They'll just be picking up talent where they want it, and then they'll do that. But that's more talent-driven play than a sort of customer-driven play or a sort of market opportunity play. I think if it's the latter, what we tend to see companies do is go to one country first, get their head around that, and then once they're in the country, they can work out where the next opportunity is and then the next opportunity and build from there. There are exceptions to this, but generally speaking, if you try to do them all at once, that can be very hard. And you need, you certainly need a lot of resources to do that. We've worked with companies that have launched in sort of 35 European cities virtually simultaneously in the sort of micro mobility space, but they were geared up for that. And that was their plan that they wanted the big rollout and they invested in that. It was very well considered and it was very well thought out. But I think if you're not that scale and that level of resource, one step at a time, in that sense, is, is, the, is the way that we see companies do it more successfully. Now, I have to ask more questions on this because you just said a customer rolled out in 35 cities simultaneously. Over the course of a relatively narrow window of months. Still, 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 that's, that's massive. Yep. What are some advantages and disadvantages of the different countries in Europe? I think, as I said earlier, most US companies, in our experience, as a general rule, look to the UK first. And the advantages there are the sort of cultural familiarity, the no language barriers, and things like that. Same with Ireland as well, to be fair. A lot of US companies go to Ireland. Um, the, you know, the UK is the fifth or sixth largest economy in the world anyway. So it's a big market in that sense in its own right. So you're not going there just because people speak English. There's a sort of market opportunity. Digital online penetration is very high in the UK in terms of sales, a lot of sort of online, one of the highest rates of online sales in the, in, in the world, in fact. So people look at it that way. But then you'll look at different companies will look at different countries based on their market and their product. I mentioned earlier, if you're automotive, the big auto manufacturers in Europe are ones you really want to be in with BMW, Volkswagen, Mercedes there in Germany. So you might look at Germany. There's a lot of cool software stuff in Berlin going on at the moment. So if you're in the software sector, you might look at Berlin, for instance. Fashion or luxury goods might drive you to Paris. It all depends on, I wouldn't say there are, it's a lot of it is market driven, but if you're sort of agnostic as to that sector, then you're going to look at where is it easiest to do business. That's going to be the sort of the other big criteria. And I think generally speaking, we would say that it is in terms of setting up a company, employing people. London, Dublin, they're going to be easier than the uh, continental European countries where a little bit more process-driven, a little bit more process-orientated, and in particular, much more labor law is much more sort of rigid and employee-friendly. Nowhere is probably as flexible as the US in terms of employment law and labor flexibility, but the UK sort of as ever sits somewhere in the middle between Europe and the US. And so if you're used to a US system of employment and 
US system of doing business, setting up companies, etc. The UK will just be more familiar to you and easier to do business in as an entrant than, say, setting up in France and Germany. That's not to say you can't do it successfully in France and Germany, but we tend to find that people need a, another reason to go there. You go there because you've got a reason to go there, not because, oh, isn't it easy to set up a company in Germany? Let's go and do it there. I got to ask more about the employment flexibility, and especially in the startup ecosystem where things are opening and closing, people are being fired, hired on a daily basis with really no one knows what's really going on. How are the employment laws for startups in Europe? The starting point is that in Europe, generally, employment law is more employee-friendly than it is here in the US. There are more protections for employees to protect their employment. Now, that, you know, there's a whole raft of sort of social, political reasons behind that. And there's probably not a lot of point debating whether they're good or bad. They are what they are. What you have to be used to as a sort of the biggest headline point we always sort of say to clients is that there's not the equivalent of employment at will. And that's the thing you sort of need to get your head around. Employees have rights. If you, you can dismiss employees, it's perfectly possible to do that, but you have to follow processes and go through those. In the UK, for instance, whilst employees have been there for less than two years, it's very close to employment at will. In Germany, whilst you have fewer than 10 employees, it's very close to employment at will. You're looking at maybe a week's notice to have to give someone rather than just say immediately they're gone. It's broadly very similar. But as you grow and as you get more employees, that becomes harder. As employees have more tenure, that becomes harder. And then there are countries like France, Spain, for instance, where it is just harder to get to make to move people on. And that becomes more of a process. How does it work in practice? It works with money. You pay people to, to sign up to agree to leave rather than just be able to get rid of them as quickly as you can here. Are there any regulation changes or things people are talking about for the startup community itself or say, if the company has not raised their A round or is less than 20 employees, but it's in a high growth area, there might be these exceptions or? I mean, I think the short answer to that is no. Um, employment law sort of pervades across all sectors and there are very few sort of sector differentiated sort of systems in, in that regard. What I would say is the flip side to the sort of employment sort of landscape in Europe is that you have there's far less churn than you would see here. I think in the US, this concept of sort of two years and move on, that doesn't exist to anywhere near the same degree. If you get good employees, you've got a much better chance, I think, of keeping them statistically, which is the kind of the reverse side of the coin of it's harder to fire people, but people are also more loyal and they, you know, they tend, as a, again, as a generalization, they tend to want to stay for longer. What about perks and incentives? And what I mean by that is there's cities overseas in Asia and that have either local funds to invest in companies, match funding, or they'll say first six months we'll ignore taxes or this office building is designated just for startups, free rent if you set up a facility there. Are there perks like that in Europe? And if so, where? There are, and there's certainly sort of on the sort of non-governmental side, there are incubators and office hubs where you can get space and things like that to that point. In terms of the governmental perk, rebates on taxes, rebates on property taxes or tax holidays, they do exist, but they tend not to be in the major cities. They're used by government as an instrument to drag investment into places 
that aren't otherwise seeing as much. So you won't get, for instance, in London, you won't get sort of government sort of tax holidays in London because London's very successful. It doesn't need to offer that sort of thing. But in other parts of the UK, there are regional funds, there are regional development bodies that are able to offer those things. And these are still big cities and good cities in their own right. Manchester, Liverpool would be sort of good examples in the UK. And there'll be the equivalents in France, Germany, Spain, wherever, that aren't the capital where everything naturally sort of goes to, where they're trying to sort of spread that investment around. And those are the places where you can get those incentives. We, in our experience, it's not something that clients tend to focus on. They want to be in the right place for them. And very rarely do we see a marginal case where I could be here, I could be there, but this place is offering me incentive, therefore I'll go to that one. But it, it tends not to be a, a significant factor. By the time I think you've committed to going overseas, you want to be going to where you're going for the right reasons and three months off property taxes is probably not going to sway your decision. So then what tips do you have for that company that's looking to set up an office in Europe? I think the first one is understand why you're doing it. And that is do your research as to are you going because this is where the talent is? Are you going where this is because the market is? And then work out why you're going to somewhere and, and choose the right place and then stick to that. It's quite easy to get distracted. It's a huge mass of people and you know, 450 million consumers, as I meant, don't suddenly sort of get diverted from your focus. Step one is sort of understand why you're going somewhere and what you're doing. And then the second step is to, to do it properly. We have seen companies that sort of where we've been asked to help them out once they've done it and they've already set things up. And then we spend a lot of time and a lot of their money undoing things that weren't done properly, where it would have been much cheaper and more efficient to do it the right way in the first place. There's often sort of a false saving there. And that applies across sort of legal and tax in particular. Get that structuring right initially. And it isn't expensive, actually. It really isn't. It can all be done very efficiently. And then that will pay dividends down the line because you won't have problems to sort out. So just take a moment to get some sort of proper advice as to how you're going to sort of structure your setup and then to formalize that. Okay. So you'd mentioned some things that might be issues or problems. What are some of the other things that companies quite often find themselves making mistakes? Sure. I think one of the things that we often spend some time sort of informally talking to clients about is the cultural differences. Whilst there are a lot of similarities between the Europe and the US, and to some degree, you know, US culture pervades, it is a different market. You will find that people in the Mediterranean countries are just not around in August. They take an extended three-week break, and that's not a, a three-week break where they're on their iPhones or laptops. They are off the grid. I think there's actually lots of good arguments for that, but it is just different to the sort of the US experience. So you have to sort of be used to that and be prepared for it. In Europe, we have notice periods in contracts. So people, typically anyone of any sort of level of seniority will have to give their employer three months notice if they want to resign. So you've found someone, you want to hire them, but they can't start next week. They've got to give their employer notice. They could have non-compete clauses in their contracts that lock them out for six months. So you've just got to be aware of these, of these differences. Obviously, in, in the Valley, a big way of incentivizing people is share options. In the UK, that is absolutely the case too. People who work in these sectors completely get that. In some of the other economies, cash is still king and they haven't yet, it's changing, but they haven't, employees haven't necessarily seen the value of options historically because there haven't been the IPOs, there haven't been the exits. So they want to see their remuneration 
in cash. And that's the, what they're focused on, not what level of options will I be getting. Being aware, I think, of those cultural differences is key. It's not that something's right or wrong. It's just that it's, it's done a little differently in some respects. And if you can be sympathetic to those, then you'll find a much, I think, better experience of setting up and attracting talent. To learn about these cultural differences, what's the best way to hire some cultural expert? How does one go about planning it the right way? I think it is around just the more conversations you can have with a broader range of people who are there to help you, who have done this before and will help you navigate it. That includes lawyers, but it's accountants, it's people who work in the HR field. And there are, even in the Valley, there are a lot of people who have done international expansion for tech companies. So hire someone, if you're thinking about it, who's done it before. They've got the experience and they'll be able to work with your team to make it a much better success for you. It is all about experience. Let's step back. Say I'm planning on either going to Europe to set up or I'm a venture capitalist investing in a European company. What should the whole thought process be? High level overview of all this, all the steps, every step possible. The gating item or the first decision is, are you doing business in Europe or are you doing business with Europe? And the difference between that is, is are you just selling your product, your services from the US into Europe or are you going to have a physical presence in Europe and do business there from that physical presence? That's, I think that's sort of step one because that will lead you in different directions depending on which way you go down. And I think you need clarity as to which route you're going in. The sort of the doing business with from the US is definitely lighter touch. You, know, you don't have a physical setup. There are still some things you need to be aware of if you're a B2C company. European consumer laws will still apply to you, even if you are consumer protection laws, even if you are selling from the US. So you have to have sort of terms and conditions on your website that recognize that and work within that system. But that's a relatively easy thing to fix and for someone to sort of go through them who's an expert in this area and make them work for that. Whereas if you're doing business in and you're looking at setting up a physical premises, an office, you're looking at employing people, you're looking at setting up an entity, that's a more involved process. Starting point is be clear, I think, as to what model you're going down and then follow that path through. Great. That's great advice. Now let's go back to, you had mentioned helping a company set up over a period of time, 35 different locations. I have to hear a couple stories of companies you've worked with. It could be good stories. It could be bad stories. I just got to hear some stories. Okay. Well, we have one client who maintains a, a sort of a pin board in their office of all the crazy employment laws they come across in Europe. Just, I think, partly to add brevity to their day, but also, and levity, but also to ensure that they don't miss anything. My favorite one is they tell me, and I, I can't verify this, I, I should check with my colleagues in Paris, that it is technically, I think, impossible or illegal to prevent a Frenchman or woman from having a glass of wine with their lunch. You cannot prohibit that. So there are, you know, there are those sort of funny things that just look a bit different. Then there are the more serious ones. We're brought into a situation where a client had done some, something with some share options to employees in Europe and hadn't done it properly. Perfectly possible to grant European-based employees share options in a US company, but they hadn't taken the time to set it up properly and they had to put a significant chunk of their purchase sale price when they were selling into an escrow because of the tax risk that they had created. You go from the sort of the 
the amusing example to the one that has the real dollar effect because you haven't taken the time to set things up properly. Any other stories that you can share with us about companies you've worked with, either early stage or later stage? What we are looking for, anyone who works in this sector is looking for the the next sort of rock star that is going to really sort of take off and become a stunning company. So the favorite anecdote we always sort of trod out at Taylor Westing is we incorporated Google's first subsidiary in the UK for them. Simple piece of work, setting up a company. And then, you know, what became of them? That's the sort of thing we are looking for. And that's the, I think anyone who works in this sector is, you know, you want these companies to grow and you want to work with them as they grow. And that initial setup work is relatively straightforward. But over time, they'll become hopefully bigger companies, better clients, do more sort of interesting stuff in Europe. And that's what, that's what everyone who works in this sector, not just the lawyers, all the, the government people, the development agencies are all, are all hoping, to, hoping to see. So we've talked about the different countries. We've talked about different cities. We've talked about different perks. We've talked about quite a few things. Can we talk a little bit more about, say I'm a U.S. company and I'm looking for venture funding from Europe. How is it different working with venture capitalists there versus venture capitalists here? Different expectations or? or I think in terms of expectations, it's similar. They're looking for the same sorts of things. They're looking for a, a business plan that makes sense. I think the main difference we probably often see is you go into a sort of a pitch here with a, with a company with a VC in front of it. Their business plan will tell you how they're going to become the biggest company in the world or dominate their market. Whereas in the UK or in Europe, VCs typically see pitches that you know, show steady incremental growth and you know, a great trajectory. And in five years, they'll be here, but not this. And in 2025, we'll have taken over the world and we'll be bigger than Amazon or whatever. It's a different sort of, it's a different expectation set. It's a different sort of mindset almost, which just reflects the cultural differences between the two places. So I think if you are a European company coming to look for money in the US, you need to sort of tailor your business plan to what US money is looking to see in terms of your story and vice versa. If you're a US company looking to raise money in Europe, that is what we, you know, you need to sort of, they're not going to believe you if you say necessarily, I'm going to be the biggest company in the world in 10 years time. You've got to be more conservative, shall we say, while still showing they want to see in terms of a great track, but a little bit more conservative in your pushing. I would say that we see probably fewer U.S. companies looking to raise money in Europe than we do the other way around. What is kind of the current state for investing in Europe? Is, has things slowed down quite a bit or what's currently going on? In terms of sort of venture capital investment in the European tech sector, 2019 was a record year really serious numbers, not as big as the Valley, but you know, London was neck and neck with New York last year in terms of VC money invested. London and New York typically are always vying for number two after the Bay Area. Berlin doing great, Paris doing great, as I mentioned. I think inevitably there has been a bit of a slowdown this year because of the sort of the, the global situation, but actually tech is still very robust. The, the economic slowdown has been more in other sectors of the economy. We're still seeing lots of good funding deals. There's still lots of money for those series A rounds and seed rounds that I mentioned. We're seeing a continuation of the trend of larger rounds in Europe. Companies raising north of 100 million at more than 1 billion valuations, which typically that's not always, there's a lot of US money in there and non-US money as well, but non-European money. 
but those companies that are now of a really substantial size in Europe, those privately held sort of tech companies, unicorns, as they're known to, we're seeing more and more of them in Europe. And that trend has continued uh, through the current situation, potentially at a slightly slower pace. But I think it's still a very robust market and people are still very optimistic. I think the what we were hoping to see this year before the pandemic hit was a number of those big companies, big European sort of very well-funded billion plus valuation companies exit into the US market through an IPO. Those have been put on hold, obvious reasons, but I'm still confident they'll come back. And that I think is the next stage in the evolution of the European market. Those you've had here for a number of years, those sort of big exits, the big listings that then enable the sort of circle to regenerate because people have then got money to go out and do their next company or do a bit of seed investing on the side, angel money, et cetera. So hopefully when, when things get back to a bit more normal, we'll see that as well. I'm actually really curious about exits in Europe. Kind of what is the exit expectations for companies? It has changed. The trite way of saying it sort of five years ago would be that if you waived a check for $50 million in front of a founder in, in the UK or Europe, where do I sign? There wasn't that sort of, no, no, I'm not selling now. This company's going to be worth $2 billion in three years' time. Why am I selling to you now for 50 We, we didn't have that same mentality, as, again, as a generalization. But I think, I think that has changed and is changing. You're seeing founders want to grow companies to a much bigger size, and there's the infrastructure to allow them to do that before they exit. In terms of what do exits look like, there's probably a couple of main routes. We still see a lot of exits through M&A, through trade buyers. A lot of, as a firm, we focus on US money coming into Europe to do those exits. And that's a, there are a lot of those. The strength of the dollar helps, those, helps make those deals attractive. I think valuations are still lower generally in Europe. And you get more bang for your buck as a US buyer. And there are great companies and great tech out there. So people, we still see a lot of those sort of M&A deals where US companies buy, come in and buy a, a European business. But increasingly, we're seeing IPOs. To your question as to why do the really successful companies look to the US to do that, it comes back to valuation. Valuations are generally higher here in the US. So that's obviously more money for founders and particularly for their investors when they exit. And I think the US market just gets tech IPOs more. It understands it with the strength of NASDAQ. There is a pool of capital there for, for those IPOs. You see them in the UK, but not to the same extent. They tend to be either smaller companies going on AIM, which is our equivalent of NASDAQ, or to go to the full London Stock Exchange. It's more traditional economy companies, again, as a, as a rule of thumb. A side question. I'm not sure if I uh, found an answer to this or not, but for the companies that are going public on the AIMs or in Europe, are they, I mean, you mentioned more traditional companies. What about from Africa, such as Nigeria and Kenya that have startup communities? Mm. Are they mostly focused on European venture capitalists or the public markets there? Or is there, how's that relationship looking right now? There's a very good relationship there. There's a lot of funds in Europe, in London in particular, that focus on Africa and see the opportunity there. I think obviously Geography and history helps with that, but we definitely see a lot of that. And then we see those companies try to raise money in London, either through venture capital or through the public markets when they reach a certain level of maturity. And what we, I think one of the key points is to get a successful listing on AIM, you can do it at a much smaller size of company than you could list here on NASDAQ in terms of sort of turnover. 
So there are a number of companies that have sort of listed in London first, and then when they've grown to a certain level, may have moved over to NASDAQ at that point. But a lot of, because of those sort of historic routes, a lot of the places in Africa look towards Europe first, raise money there, and then look to the US. Great. And is there anything that I didn't ask, anything that you think that our listeners should know, any topics, any, any stories that you'd like to share? I think we've covered a lot. One thing I would say is, you know, when you're at the right stage, it's a fantastic opportunity in Europe as a whole for US companies. The younger generation in particular craves sort of US tech and US products. So there's, a, there's that side of things on the consumer side that does very well. You know, places like London, Frankfurt are still massive financial hubs. So if you're in that sort of sector, fintech is booming in Europe. So a lot of opportunities there. Companies can really make an absolute success of going international and going into Europe because there is so much potential there. Just coming back to my original point, just do it properly and then you'll make a success of it. And don't be one of those companies where we're talking about in a few years time, where we're talking about sort of the horror stories of things that have gone wrong. It's much more boring, but do it right and it'll work really well for you. Great. And David, if anyone wants to find out more information about yourself, get in touch with you or your company, what's the best way to go about doing it? Sure. Thank you. So I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me on LinkedIn, David Bates, or through the website of Taylor Wessing. All my contact details are on that. Great. We'll have all that information on the show notes. And for all our listeners at home, please share this content with your network, like and subscribe. And that encourages us to make more great content such as this. And I'll see you next week on the Silicon Valley podcast. All right. Cheers. Thank you again, David. Thank you. Cheers, Sean. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley podcast. To access our resources, visit us at the siliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only and is licensed by the Investors Podcast Network. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.